All right, welcome. Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We are thankful that you are here to worship our Savior um, together this morning. And uh, we are glad for those conversations you just started. And we'd encourage you to continue those conversations afterwards. There's a, a time of fellowship where, you know, you can just get to know people, catch up, talk about things, pray for one another. And then uh, there'll be a second hour of Sunday school classes as well. But uh, we are thankful that you are here to enjoy this Lord's Day together with all of us. And as you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, just want to say a couple words just to uh, kind of refresh us in what we have been studying through the book of Romans to this point. As we have been looking at the book of Romans, we have seen a number of, uh, of marvelous things, things that uh, uh, pertain to uh, our life and how we are to live for the things of Christ, um, things pertaining to the gospel and how God, through Christ, has won or has purchased us, redeemed us from our own sins. And we have sung about that this morning. We've, uh, we've mentioned that in our prayers. We've, we've thought about that, and that's the book of Romans, uh, displaying the goodness of the gospel, that sinners can be reconciled to a holy and perfect God, not because they deserve it, not because they have something in themselves at all, but because Christ has come to lay down his life so that if we would place our faith and trust and our allegiance to him, we might have forgiveness of sins in life. Well, that, that gospel reality then starts to, uh, starts to cover or starts to flavor almost everything in the Christian life. It actually does. And for the individual that calls themselves a Christian and feels like, you know, nothing has changed over the last 10 years of their quote-unquote Christian existence, I would say something is broken, something is wrong. To get a brand new nature, to be transformed from the inside out, and then to have no effect on anything in your life is the opposite of the genuine Christian experience. In fact, as uh, the rest of Romans, chapter, chapters 1 through 11, was all about the gospel and explaining the truth and the transformational blessing of the gospel. And then from then on, the rest of Romans is all about how you apply that or how the gospel implicates itself, exercises itself out in the way that we act, the way that we think, in the way that we interact with this world and with one another. So the last several messages in, uh, in Romans, uh, all of chapter 14, have been exactly about a gospel unity. And so we could, this is really part three of that, but I thought I would change up the title so it doesn't get you bored, right? But it is gospel unity, but this particular passage, verses uh, 1 through 6 of Romans 15, is about Christ-like gospel unity. It's about how Christians should conduct themselves because of what Christ has done and who he is in a unity, that, in, a, in a oneness, in a, um, in a self-sacrificing love and care for one another that displays this Christ-like, gospel-saturated, distinctly Christian unity that only believers can fully understand. Let me open with an illustration of the opposite. Imagine that there was a town with two small, struggling churches, only a few blocks apart. They came up with a great idea. Let's merge our two congregations so that instead of two small, struggling congregations, we have a larger, more robust congregation that it would be more effective in uh, reaching this community for the things of Christ. Unfortunately, they came across a very difficult disagreement. One of the groups preferred in the Lord's Prayer, preferred the phrase, forgive us our trespasses. The other group, right, again, the Lord's Prayer, they preferred the phrase, forgive us our debts. Is it forgive us our trespasses or should it be forgive us our debts? They decided not to merge, stayed their separate churches and continue on in disunity over the phrasing of the Lord's Prayer. So the local paper reported, one church went back to its trespasses while the other returned to its debts. <laughs> and so I, I looked for the source of that. It, it's, for the sake of full disclosure, it's probably not true, right? It's just, just a good story that a good 
pastor or preacher made up one day, but I like it, right? It illustrates the idea of what should not be common amongst Christians and Christian ministry. What should not be common among us is that small things divide us. Listen, the gospel and the clarity of the gospel, that should always divide because we can't compromise anything in the gospel. There aren't multiple ways to heaven. There isn't just good things that you do. There isn't faith plus you got to do all this X, Y, and Z in order to find salvation in Christ. All of it's wrong. That needs to divide us. That's the most top level, most significant thing that unites us is the gospel and the clarity of what scripture says is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. But then after that, we might be divided even as believers in our ecclesiastical, right? Uh, Ecclesiological convictions. We are Baptists. If you guys didn't know, we're Baptists, right? And that, that means that we believe that baptism is, uh, is, uh, is a mark or is a, an act of obedience that signifies our death to ourselves and our union with Christ and is always, always follows, right, our confession of faith in Him. So we don't baptize our babies. Do, do excellent and wonderful Christians baptize their babies? Yeah, those crazy dudes do, Right? <laughs> They're, they're not crazy, right? They're excellent Presbyterian brothers and sisters and other Reformed brothers and sisters that do. That is their conviction. But even though we are united in the gospel, we are separated eccle- um, ecclesiologically in terms of the church, right? We are separated church to church because of certain doctrinal convictions. And then there's a third level of those things that we couldn't clearly define as sin, but they might feel like sin to some. And so some press hard that, hey, you shouldn't be listening to that kind of music. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be wearing those kind of clothes. You shouldn't be, and it usually comes in the form of all the things you shouldn't be. But on the flip side, in response to that, right, that would be the weaker conscience, the one that feels all these things that they are not able to do because they feel the weight of these things feeling like it's wrong. And then on the flip side is the strong conscience. And again, weak and strong doesn't simply mean, right, whether you're godly or not. It just simply means that in this particular area, your conscience is stronger. You're less sensitive. You know that this is not an issue of sin, nothing to repent of, so you don't think it's a big deal that I wear blue jeans. You don't think it's a big deal that, that you know, that I, I listen to this kind of music or, or that, that, you know, that I do these things or don't do these other things. You know, there is a potential for great divisiveness amongst two excellent believers, or if we take it in groups, amongst entire groups of Christians, depending on their convictions about a whole number of things, how you vote. What you think about the current, you know, um, politics or what are you going to do in terms of the economy or how you're going to spend your money on this or that. So many things that could divide us. And I think the scriptures will call us to the opposite. That as far as the gospel is concerned, we are united in that. As far as doctrine is concerned, we might be divided amongst churches, but nevertheless, we are like-minded in terms of who God is and how he has rescued us from our sin. And as far as all other things are concerned, to give grace, to act with humility, and to love one another as if Christ has made a difference. And if you haven't figured that out, the underlying and absolutely most most emphasized message here is that Christ does indeed make a difference in everything in your life. That was a long introduction. It was supposed to be only two minutes, but there you have it. Let's read uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right in to kind of exploring Christ-like gospel unity. Chapter 15 of the book of Romans, starting in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we open this text of scripture this morning, we ask 
for your enabling power, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see good things from your word. And that we wouldn't just see these good things, Lord, but we would we'd find application for our souls. That we might start to think differently about certain things, certain actions, certain thoughts. And then as a result of that, we might act out, we might speak out, we might do what is best according to your purposes and glory. Help us to reformulate, refocus our minds and hearts so that we are building up one another to the things of Christ and that we are all of us, as those that call upon the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we are all of us uniting, finding commonness in the gospel and exalting the gospel even in the eyes of those that are, that are curious, that are watching, that are wondering if Christ really makes a difference. So help us to live in such a way that honors you, our Savior, in every area of our lives, especially in our unity one to another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about Christ-like gospel unity. And, uh, and as uh, we do that, there we go, um, three things, and, and, and they're all minded this, right? Um, three ways that I think the, the, this passage will speak to how we are to shape or direct our thinking. One is to be ministry-minded as far as our Christian unity is concerned. Two is to be gospel-minded um, as far as our Christian unity is concerned. And finally is to be glory-minded. Not our glory, but God's glory, but always to keep God's glory in mind. So let's begin with ministry-minded unity in verses 1 and 2. And the first verse opens up this entire section by saying this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So it begins, right, with this ministry-minded unity because we do have an obligation. In particular, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. But specifically, and we need to catch this, Paul says, we who are strong. There's a couple of things I want to mention about that just to kind of jump off. One is that Paul counts himself in the party of the strong. Right, we who are strong. Secondly, that he addresses the strong, but notice then on, and when we get to verse 2, you'll see, I think he's addressing both the strong in conscience and the weak in conscience, both. There isn't an address specific to the weak in conscience. That may have come earlier, we might argue, in in chapter 14, when it's do not judge, right? That might be the case, but I think it's interesting that Paul, number one, identifies himself as one that is strong in his conscience, and two, that we that are strong, he as a party member of those that do not have a sensitive or weak conscience in some of these areas concerning meat, concerning drink, that he would say we have an obligation to the weak. The reason why is because there's a particular burden on those that have that freedom to know, biblically speaking, there is nothing wrong with the meat. There's no such thing as idols, according to 1 Corinthians, right? So it might have been, you know, it might have been blessed by some idol worshiper, but it doesn't make any difference. It's still molecularly, biologically, it's still the same meat as any other meat, right? And we could eat that, and it doesn't affect us spiritually whatsoever. That's a biblical truth. Paul recognizes that, and because he recognizes it, he says, I'm, I'm with this party, we are of this group. But he doesn't mean I'm with this party to separate from them. No, he is saying, but even having those clear understandings of biblical principles, I need to be helpful, I need to bear with the failings of the weak. But what does that mean? Because right, at least in our terminology, in our English, doesn't it kind of sound like I need to bear with their stupidity? I need to bear with their ignorance, right? I need to bear with their inabilities. In other words, I need to tolerate them because they are so dumb and weak. What else can you do? I don't think that's the sense of it. If you think of the word bear, and the reason why the ESV translates this term bear, because the idea is to carry someone or something. I should have said the opposite, right? Is to carry something or to carry someone. If someone is weaker than you, there might be occasions when you have to carry them. The emphasis being on the tenderness of the care and the love expressed in bearing with them and bearing them. So in Galatians 6.2, we are called, all believers are called, 
to bear one another's burdens. I think that's the concept of it. That we are to not just tolerate each other, but to help one another, especially in areas that feel oppressive or difficult to each other. So if there's a brother and sister in Christ and they're sensitive to certain things, it's not just, oh, okay, that guy's coming. Okay, then I guess I can't, I can't have my beer or I can't, you know, I can't go outside and have my cigar. Or, you know what I mean? It's not about my limitations and the tolerance of that particular individual that is impinging upon my freedom. It's the opposite. The point is that the strong have an obligation to help those that are weak. An obligation to not just carry them, not to care for them, not to be mindful of not to injure them, but also to bring them along to strengthen them in those very areas of weakness. It's one thing for me to say, hey, listen, um, I know you struggle with me, you know, rooting for the Dodgers, right? And I'm, I'm looking at a few of the Giants fans right now, right? Amen, right? But, right, like, you might, like, if you actually struggle with that and said, said, Nam, you use too many sports illustrations, I struggle with that because I don't think sports, I don't think that's life. And you, you just use it too much, like, like we care. We don't care, right? And I, at first I'd be greatly offended, but then I need to recognize maybe that's an area of weakness for you. That, that's fine. So I, I need to curb at least my freedom in your presence and not go, hey, listen, we're all going to, you know, skip church and watch this game. You want to watch it with us? Right? Like that could be really interesting to you. But on the other hand, right, not only do I want to tolerate in graciousness, but I also want to come alongside you. I want to bear your burden. I want to say, hey, listen, why, why is that a difficulty? And it doesn't have to be right at that moment. There needs to be wisdom applied, but I need to desire that they grow into things that are their freedoms. And they, they may never come to the point where they go, okay, I get it, you know, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm just 24-7 ESPN now, right? They don't need to get to that. But if they start to recognize that this is not a biblical sin, right? And, and again, all things can be used unto excess, unto sinfulness. That part's true. But to recognize that if people want to talk about sports, that's not an evil thing. If they recognize that and they, 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 you know, affirm that, that's what Scripture teaches us, and they have matured in that weakness. They might still themselves choose not to participate. That's, fantastic. that's fine. But they're no longer injured. They're less injured, in fact, to the point that they grow in that to where after a while they're not injured at all. That, that's the idea of the obligation of the strong, Right? For the sake of the failings of the weak, the word failings might throw you. Uh, it's a word that could be translated, if it's physical, it would be illness. It's a weakness. It's a frailty. We are to bear, help, come alongside the weak because they have, right, weakness, frailty in some of these areas. And not simply to please ourselves. Obligation is a great word, all right? If used financially, in a financial context, it means that you owe a debt. But used in other contexts, like here, it means that you are obliged. You have an obligation. There's an oughtness. You know, you ought to do something that this would be correct and good for you to participate in. That's a strong word, right? It's that great Peter Parker principle. With great power comes great reward, no, it's testing you. That's not, right? You got, it's with great power comes great responsibility. Don't act like you guys don't know the Peter Parker principle. Man. Come on. All right? We all know that, right? With great power comes great responsibility. That, that's, there's a very true thing in that. And we have a responsibility to care for one another, to be united around the gospel, not simply to please ourselves. Pleasing ourselves would mean that I get to do what I want whenever I want. God doesn't call it sin, so I don't care if you call it sin. I'm just going to do it in your face. It is about caring and bearing the burdens of those that might struggle. See, that's, that's why I'm saying it's a, there's a ministry-mindedness to our Christian unity. We are trying to please others. We're trying to care for others, not just caring for ourselves. There's an obligation to bear with uh, the, the, the sensitivities, the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the second part of that, verse 2, is that we also have a duty to build up one another. Verse 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, I said that I think verse 2 departs from simply 
Paul speaking about us, the party of the strong, those that know our biblical convictions and know that these things are not sin, he departs from that to speak to the entire group, strong conscience and weak conscience. The reason why I say that is look at the, look at the phrase, that first part, let each of us please his neighbor. See, the each is not necessary. And that's actually in the Greek. There's a, there's a, um, uh, there's a pronoun there that identifies that Paul is saying, let each one of us right? Please his neighbor for his good. It's not necessary. He could have simply said, let us, if he meant the strong party still, let us, the strong party, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. But by saying, let each of us, I think he is now saying, now each, you in this party, you in this party, you in this particular conviction, right? You in this particular sensitivity, regardless of where you land on any of these issues, these freedom issues, this is a principle for all of us. Let all of us, each one of us, regardless of where we are in our context, seek to please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. It's not to seek to please his neighbor as in, you know, just pleasing men, right? Doing whatever other human beings want. In fact, Paul vociferously, that's a good word, right? Um, He vocally and loudly decries any ministry that is simply about pleasing men. In Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he is saying that we're not men pleasers. We're not just looking for good opinions of others. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. So he has already said in multiple occasions throughout his other letters that we are not seeking to just please men for the sake of being popular. So that's not what this is saying. Let each of us please his neighbor. See, here's the next part that defines this. Please his neighbor in what sense? For his good to build him up. The idea is to please others or please our neighbors, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in such a way that it would be their good and that it would build them up. So pleasing others is a determined adjustment to our lifestyle, to to our decisions, to our exercise of freedoms in such a way that there would be spiritual good done for our brother or sister in Christ. That, that, that's what that's talking about. And that's the key. For his good to build him up. That, that whatever is done would strengthen him in regard to his weaknesses. Would, would promote spiritual vitality and health and would ultimately build him up. It's the same word that we often translate, right, edify. It is a, a structural kind of step upon step, brick upon brick. We are trying to build up one another so that we become strong, free, glad, joyful servants united with one another in service to Jesus Christ. The church is filled with diversity. It should be. Diversity of cultures, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of the way we talk, diversity of the things we like to eat, Diversity of the things that we like to drink, the things we like to watch, the things that entertain us. I mean, we can go on and on. The style of clothing we wear, etc., right? The church is full of diversity, and that is a good thing. And the fact that we, in terms of our legalistic, sinful, self-righteous tendencies, have kind of a tendency to say, why don't you act like me? Why don't you dress like me? Why don't you cut your hair like me? Why are you coloring your hair unlike me, Right? We have a tendency to do that to each other. And all of it is self-righteousness and sin. It really is. You can be totally different. Even in the perspectives that you have about how this, this world should be run and what is happening, that's okay. As long as we're not saying that the other person is in sin because of it. And we can actually disagree and still Love one another. The funny thing to me is that if you have any relationship that's a good relationship, healthy relationship, whether it's, you know, husband to wife or parents to children or, you know, your, your relationship to other good friends, someone that's real close to you, if they are healthy relationships, they tolerate naturally diversity and difference. So how weird that too often in a Christian community, it's like 
Of course I could be your, you know, your brother in Christ if you can do these kind of things, right? As long as you kind of reshape your life so that it kind of matches me. And that's bizarre and wrong. Our task is to not please ourselves, but instead to flip that around in gospel Christ-like unity so that we are looking to please our neighbor for his good to build him up. This is the real life building up of one another that defines the love and unity that should be um, characteristic of every body of believers. I like what one commentator says. He says, Paul is not laying down a rule of conduct but enunciating a principle of tender concern. See, what you should catch from this morning and from this passage this morning is not that, hey, these are what you need to do. This is what you need to stop. It's not so much the conduct, right, the do's and don'ts that Paul's laying down. He's talking about the heart. He's saying you ought to have a ministry-minded heart. And that that leads you to unity, seeking to please others for their good. There should be something in you that just kind of thinks beyond, oh, you're so different from me. I have a pastor friend who's, um, who's got tattoos, right? Okay, don't, don't judge already, man. I, I feel you, the weight of your judgment. But, right, he's got, he's got tattoos. You know, he had, um, you know, a little bit of a, a rough background and stuff. And uh, he's a good friend. And, um, and he started wearing right? Um, he's a good pastor. He started wearing like a collared shirt, like, you know, like, like a rector would wear, you know, like a Catholic priest or, you know, an Anglican or, or an Episcopalian, right? They wear the white part of this collar show. He started wearing that like once a week. And I'm like, bro, what's the deal with this, right? Like, why, why, is, why is this the new fashion for you, right? Like, you know, because usually he'll, he'll wear what looks like skater apparel, you know? He's like one of those dudes, right? He rides a bike, you know, like not bicycle but bike like like, uh you know on the weekends and stuff like so so it's like what's what's going on with this and he said you know he started realizing that he'd go do visitations at local hospitals and um the security guy would follow him (laughs) and i said no no and he's like yeah no for real and i'm there to try to pray for like uh, a member of the church etc and they would just kind of keep an eye on you and they'd ask you where you're going and you know like they just kind of keep it and he said and so a friend told him, you know, if you were Episcopalian, you'd be wearing those things. And he's like, oh. So he bought one. And then the next time he shows up at the hospital, they're like, oh, father. And he's, you know, he's not a Catholic father, but father, um, who, are you visiting someone? Oh, okay. Well, why don't you go there? Stay as long as you like. You know, they just kind of let him be. And, and it just kind of totally changed the perspective of how people, right, you, you related to him. Now listen, this is, this is a Christian relating to unbelievers mostly, but my point is this. There's an immense diversity in the body of believers, and when we are ministry-minded, we find different ways that we can encourage and help one another, that we, could be, we can manage your sensitivities while at the same time encouraging you to think better, to live better, to do better. That's our call to do whatever we can to break down barriers and to seek the lost. And so if you have a friend, if you have a coworker, if you have a, um, a neighbor, um, a fellow student, and they are like, you're like, man, that person probably doesn't like church at all. Man, that's the person God probably needs to lay on your heart to ask to come out to church and meet all the suit-wearing pastors that walk around. It's a, like, that would be fantastic for them to know that they are welcome here because they are. Every sinner is welcome here to hear the same gospel that could rescue their souls, even if they have tattoos, what? right? Even if they're skater people. That's a tough one, man. That's some weird people, right? But to welcome them in, in ministry-minded gospel unity. Second principle. We need to move here a little bit, right? Ministry-minded unity, and that's one mindset. The second is a gospel-minded unity. And I mean this differently, not about evangelism so much, but about who Christ is and what he has done by way of our example, and then about our duty to, to build up our neighbor, to, uh, sorry, our duty to learn from the instruction of Scripture, um, other examples of how to live right, for a gospel-mindedness. Um, verse 3 is about Christ's sacrifice. Verse 3 said, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I'm saying it's Christ's sacrifice because that might not be at least uh, obvious to you at first reading. I mean, the first part we get. 
Christ did not please himself. He had, Paul had just written about how we are not to be self-pleasers. In other words, just living for ourselves and going, hey, this is my freedom. Live with it or get rid of it. I mean, up to you, but, you know, I get to do what I want to do. And he's saying, don't just live for yourself, self-pleasing, but please others for their good. Seek to do others good. Well, then here's the example of Christ, who is always our most uh, 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 exemplary or most supreme example. And Paul goes immediately to the Christ, and he says, Christ did not please himself. So we get that. That part, I think, kind of naturally fits in. He didn't despise, judge, right, sinners. In fact, his reputation was that he hangs out with, he has dinner with tax collectors and sinners. Man, if that Jesus were a true prophet, he would know what kind of woman that he's speaking with. Those kind of accusations fell on Jesus all the time. And for the sinners who were lost and who knew that they were lost, he expressed amazing grace, patience, and mercy. The sinners who were convinced that they were not lost, they were angry and that uh, felt like, you know, there's only a certain way of living and all those other sinners can't come into the kingdom of heaven because they're, they're junk, but we're not. To those individuals, Christ often gave the strongest, right, the strongest rebuke. But this is talking about how Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's an interesting um, Old Testament passage to draw from, from Psalm 69. Now, so that you know, Psalm 69 is drawn from, uh, is drawn from in many parts of the New Testament. John 15, 25, they hated me without cause. That's 69 verse 4, Psalm 69, 4. Right? John 2.17, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69, verse 9. John 19, 28 through 29, right? it talks about uh, um, um, how I thirst, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That's from Psalm 69, 21, in fulfillment of that. And in Romans 11, 9 and 10, it speaks about how David wrote, uh, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened, etc. All of that from Psalm 69, 22 to 23. So there's a lot of times that the, the New Testament writers went to this particular psalm, a messianic psalm, in the psalm, if you, if you, I'm not going to go through much more of it, um, but if you read it on your own, it's a psalm, it's a messianic psalm um, written about a godly man, the Messiah, um, who, because of his zealous connection to please his God, received the reproach that was directed to God. He's a defender of God, and so he gets that reproach, and he gets that reproach to the point that he is sinking. In fact, Psalm 69, 1 opens up with this. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. He, he is being drowned in a sea of hatred because of his connection to God. Now, why am I saying that has to do with his sacrifice? Because all of that, why would Jesus receive reproach that he didn't directly deserve? Because he received that reproach, right, in order to rescue us from our sins. Reproach simply means uh, scoffing or ridicule or hatred. And Psalm 69 is used by the early church as well as the New Testament to speak of Christ's willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of others. That's why it begins with he did not please himself, but instead the reproaches that he didn't, receive, didn't deserve, he received. And why does Paul use this particular phrase of all the different parts of uh, Psalm 69 he could have used? Because he's trying to emphasize, listen, if you're strong of conscience, you could reproach those that are weak of conscience. Man, give me text and verse or shut up, right? If you're weak of conscience, meaning that you're very sensitive to some of these things, you could say, dude, I can't believe you're eating meat offered to idols. That's not godly. That's not mature. That's odd. What Christian would do that? That's called reproach. The strong reproaching the weak. The weak reproaching the strong. And Paul is saying, listen, what is the example of Christ our Savior? 
He took the reproach that he didn't, didn't deserve. Not only did he not reproach others, but he gladly received all the hatred necessary in order to make us, to rescue us, right, from sin and from death. That, that's the gospelness, right? That's the good news of Christ's sacrificial willingness to suffer in our place. That, that, that's the point. He suffered before God for our sake. He didn't please himself. He could have, but instead, he sought our good. And so Paul's point is, should we not follow the example of our Savior? Should we not follow the example of Christ's sacrifice? That's verse 3. But gospel-mindedness is not just the example of Christ, but the example is throughout Scripture. Verse 4, Scripture's instructions. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It begins with the example of Christ, and then it adds that all of these things are testified for our instruction so that through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting and excellent things to unpack here, but let, let, let's just say it this way. In my mind, I think that first phrase, that through endurance, is separate from the second phrase, through the encouragement of Scripture. And so if you think about it that way, I think there's almost a formula here, that there is an endurance plus, right, there is the encouragement of Scriptures equals we might have hope. I think the endurance part is separate and not talking about scriptural endurance, right? But it is endurance that is testified certainly in Scripture, but is specific to the person of Christ. I think that's why verse 3 began that way, to talk about Christ's sacrifice, his willingness to receive reproach that he didn't deserve, his endurance, his steadfastness. You combine that with everything else that is written in former days for our instruction, all of the scriptures, and the encouragements, the consolation, the building up that the scriptures provide for us as evidence of the reasons why we should still stake ourselves with God even if injustice comes our way. Even if people don't treat us correctly. Even if reproaches fall upon us that we don't deserve like Christ. His endurance plus the encouragement of the scriptures so that we might have hope. So that we might have hope. This is about honoring Christ by living sacrificially like him. This is gospel-mindedness. Living in such a way that it is, it is about what Christ has done for us and how that impacts the way that we live for others, in front of others, and for the sake of their good. It's written, right, for our encouragement, his endurance, was for our salvation, and all of this equals our hope. And if you're following this logic, right, and this is me when I'm thinking about the scriptures and the word choice that is inspired by the Holy Spirit in these things, I'm thinking to myself, why are we talking about hope? Right? We're in the midst of talking about those that are strong have an obligation to the weak. We have a, ability to, uh, a duty to build them up. Christ didn't please himself. I get that, Right? He, he received reproaches that he didn't deserve. In fact, not only did he not reproach others, and he could have, but he received reproaches, right? And he did that for us. I get that. The scriptures are given to us for our instruction so that through the endurance that is exemplified in Christ and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, and hope was not what I was expecting. Because I don't feel like that's what was needed in this entire formula of everything that we're learning. That we might have love, maybe? That we might have a graciousness to one another? That we might be kind? Why does this all lead us to hope? And I think uh, that, the, that the answer is this. Remember, and we've said this before, hope is faith just aimed forward. Hope is trust and belief in something that is to come with such certainty that we anticipate its reality even though it's not here yet. That, that's, that's, what, that's what hope means. And for the Christian, hope in what is to come, what is finally to come, provides us an eternal perspective of what the gospel has won for us now. 
What does it mean for you and I to say that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ right now? Well, it means, one, we have this hope that abides. So that no matter what bad thing, what difficulty, what tragedy, what brokenness affects us in this life presently, we can endure. Why? Because that life is coming. And that life is certain. And that life is eternal. That perspective, a gospel perspective starts to bleed into the way that we do everything. And I think that's Paul's point. When we have that hope, then these small skirmishes mean so little to us that Paul in 1 Corinthians says, listen, if my brother is struggling over me eating meat, I could stop eating meat for the rest of my life. This is so insignificant to what is to come. And that's why I hope. So when we think about why would Christ endure reproach and die for us and endure that shame so we might have life in him forever. And we think about everything else that the scriptures talk about in terms of, in terms of what it means that we have trusted in Christ and what that promise is unto eternal life. It doesn't promise that everything in this life will be great, but it promises that that life will. It leads us to a hope that becomes in the fuel And listen, faith looking forward with an eternal perspective, that's hope. Hope becomes the fuel for us to deal with everybody and in anything, in every circumstance, in a way that is Christ-centered and gospel-saturated. I can handle this stuff. Not because I'm strong, not because I'm smart, not because I know the answers. I don't. But Christ has already rescued my soul. And this person in their struggles... They don't realize it, but the one solution is Jesus Christ. And when I start thinking in those eternal, in, in those eternal, um, in that eternal perspective, when I start thinking with that kind of gospel hope, it starts to change everything. And that, that's, I think, where Paul is getting to. On the flip side, on the other hand, it implies that there's a very realistic temptation for us to give up in the midst of our discontentment and disappointment with one another. But if we have that hope, if we're abiding in the things of Christ, if we're reminded again what we live for and why we live, if we have a gospel-minded, gospel-saturated hope, we tend to find plenty of space for unity in the midst of our differences. Ministry-minded, right? Ministry-minded unity was the first one. Gospel-minded unity was the example of Christ and the Scriptures. And finally, glory-minded unity in verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. It begins with a prayer. And it is a, is a wish prayer or prayer wish, right? Um, it's an interesting and, and, and not often used um, a verb tense in the, in the New Testament Greek. It, it, uh, it, it implies that there is a wish. This is why it says, may the God of endurance. In other times, if it's may the God of endurance, it's just trying to put into English what is um, basically just um, a, a, a command form saying, God, may you do this and that. But here, it is expressed in, in almost this wishfulness. So I'm convinced it's a prayer because it's addressed to God. May God, but as he's saying that, Paul is saying, man, this would be my desire. This would be my wish. Oh, that God, the God of endurance and encouragement would grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That he might grant to you, that he might give to you. Pause there because that's significant. It is that his wishful prayer is that God, the God of endurance and encouragement, might give to you something. Sometimes Paul and sometimes the writers of the scriptures would use that, would talk about a particular attribute of God, and from that attribute, this exact thing that you need. And so he's just talked about the endurance and encouragement of scripture, and he's saying, who is the source of all of the endurance and encouragement that you might think of? It is God himself. So, man, my wish, my prayerful wish is that God would grant to you, Christian, the God that is able to give you endurance, the God that is able to give you encouragement, right? That he would grant to you to live in harmony with one another, to live in harmony with one another. The phrase is literally that you might think or have the mind, that you might be minded in the same way. 
I've heard erroneously someone once tell me that that phrases like this, because this kind of phrase happens here and sometimes in Philippians, I've heard it erroneously said that, you you know what this is saying? It's saying that we all need to have the same opinion. In a church, we have that same, same opinion. And because that's what it means to be of the same mind, of like-mindedness. Think of how wrong and backwards that is when Paul has been affirming that there's a strong and there's a weak, that we are different of opinions, but that we ought to treat one another as if they are members of the body of Christ. In other words, recognizing difference and trying to understand how we get along despite our differences has been the theme of a chapter and a half to this point. And to say that, oh yeah, let's just flatline this. Let's make it simple. This is the point. Paul's wish is that we all think the same thing, that we have the exact same opinion. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. He's saying, I hope that you flourish despite your differences of opinion. I hope that you guys find a one accord and a desire to live together in harmony. To be of the same mind does not mean to be of the same opinion. Instead, it means to be of the same perspective. That these eternal things that we're talking about, the eternal hope that he has just mentioned, that those things will flavor all of us regardless of our position on anything particular in terms of our opinions. And all of this in accord with Christ Jesus. Because he's the model, Christ's likeness is the model for how we get along with one another despite our very distinguishably different ideas, thoughts, and convictions about so many things. He's not expecting them to hold the same opinion about debated issues, but instead to live with similar purpose, with similar harmony. And I think that's why the ESV translates it harmony. It's a good translation that we have to live with the spirit of unity a gospel unity with one another, preserving the common purpose of what Christ would have us to do. That last phrase, in accord with Christ Jesus. In a way that accords with Him, His character, His purposes, His death on the cross for us, His sacrifice. We are to be glory-minded in our unity. In other words, we are to honor the Son. We are to give glory to Jesus Christ in all that he has done by living with one another in a like-mindedness that strives together for the purposes of God and to please him. Harmony that honors the Son, that was verse 5, and the unity that glorifies the Father, that's verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice first, it was that, uh, that God would grant to you to live in harmony in a way that is in accord with Christ Jesus, that, that fits to the character of the person and the ministry of Christ Jesus. But now here, secondly, it is about God the Father. That you together may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an unusual expression, but it's emphasizing the fatherhood of, of the, the first person of the Trinity. That God the Father is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that began everything, including sending his son to die on a cross for us. So him being the architect of our salvation, he's saying ultimately our unity glorifies that God, our father, who has sent his son, his only son, to die the death that we deserve to die. That first phrase, though, is the part that I really love. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, uh, um, it is in order that with the same accord and in one mouth you might glorify God. It, it, it's kind of run over a little bit in our English translation, but when it says that together, right, it means that in one accord, the, with one spirit. And so that's the, that's the internal part to say that there is something internally in all of us that is similar, that unites us, that we have the same, right? That we have the, the, the same oneness, the same mindedness of soul, the same purposes of heart. That's the internal part. The second part is with one voice, literally with one mouth. So even the things that we speak about, the way that we speak about them, we are similar because we keep bringing things back to the gospel and the things of the Lord and the glory of Jesus Christ. That that kind of, that unity is internal and it's verbal, it's external, and it is expressed 
in a desire, a desperate desire to glorify God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What, what an excellent illustration of the harmony that Christians should have one to another. That in their heart, inwardly, they are of one mind. That in their, in their outward expression, especially verbally through their mouths, they are of one heart, one soul, one mouth. And I think that's best expressed in the moment of worship. Right? If we want a physical illustration of that, we had it when we were singing our songs. That we are lifting our voices, glorifying Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our God. And saying that we are, all of us, united, right, in lifting up the same words because God deserves all the glory for what he has given to us in saving us from our sins in Christ. That when we're united in that way, heart and with mouth, in that moment, we are living the unity, all right, that is a gospel-minded unity built around the person of Christ and is intended for God's glory. That's the oneness that Christians are to seek. I give you one verse to kind of look forward to next week that begins uh, our next section, but it's the therefore, and we should probably at least give you that as something to chew on as you leave. Verse 7, the next verse says, Therefore, based on all that we've talked about to this point, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your infinite grace to us. Um, We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that regardless of what background we come from, regardless of what things we have struggled with, regardless of what we have done or thought, Lord, we are all sinners deserving eternal death. But that you have granted to us, Lord, the capacity to know and to believe on Jesus Christ, to trust him with our entire being, to confess our sins, to turn from our sinfulness, and to believe that Jesus Christ would pay for our penalty. Let that gospel truth be the foundation for how we deal with one another and the rest of the world. And especially as we talk about how we deal with one another, that there would be a harmony, a commonness, a unity, a oneness that expresses the depth and the majesty of your grace and salvation for us. So may we represent you well to honor the Son and glorify the Father all our days on earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.